Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, you'll remember that we studied 17 two weeks ago, and that of course is the story of David and Goliath. David conquering the Philistine giant Goliath. And last week as we began chapter 18, we begin to see the responses that Saul's son Jonathan, and now Saul have to watching David's success. First we saw Jonathan, and today we see a deep contrast to Jonathan's response when we read about Saul. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 6. Hear now God's word. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed a thousand, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David on from that day forward. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before all the people. And David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. Let's pray together. Father, you say your word is like a sword, it's like a two-edged sword that will divide deep in our hearts and it will do the work of exposing things that are there that we don't want to see because you are the great physician who will heal us and restore us and make us look like your son Jesus. So we pray this morning that you would give us courage as we look at a passage like this and you would give us humility to see the change that you want to bring inside of us. We ask this in Jesus' powerful healing name. Amen. Well, we said that there's a contrast being built here. We got to see Jonathan's response to David's success, and we said that Jonathan had a remarkable reaction. I mean, Jonathan is the crown prince. He is going to inherit the kingdom of Israel, and here comes this upstart of a leader, David, and Jonathan, against all kind of cultural understanding of what he should be doing at this point, basically lays down his life and he esteems David in the midst of Israel. When Jonathan does that, he shows us Jesus. He shows us what Jesus is like because Jesus does the very same thing. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich. Well, we turn in those first five verses now to see Jonathan's father Saul react to the success of David. And really what we have are three mini stories that occur. But we see that Saul has the exact opposite reaction of his son Jonathan. Jonathan esteems David, but Saul, he envies David. Jonathan, in his response, he shows us Jesus, but but Saul, in his response... Really, he shows us the deep, dark places in our heart. 
A passage like this that exposes Saul and exposes what's in his heart also exposes us. It's a passage that digs into us. It digs into our lives. It pries and it asks questions about the feelings and the emotions that we have. And so today, with courage, we're going to study envy in Saul, but also in ourselves. And we're going to see the ways in which God will give us freedom from this. Now, If you guys have ever been a part of an accountability group, particularly one in college, you've probably experienced this subculture of accountability groups. And that is, there's always a session like this where everybody sits down, you meet week after week, and there's four or five of you in the room, and you go to the first person and you ask, what sins did you commit this week? And that person says, "I, I looked at pornography. I confess I did that. The next person says, I got high. The next person says, you know, I drank every night this week and I didn't want to do that. And finally, you turn to the last person in the circle and he kind of shifts in his seat and he says, you know, I'm really dealing with pride. And everybody in the room kind of rolls their eyes and says, "Um, that's not a real sin, man. I mean, all of us are really trying to be honest here and we're confessing real things. And this guy sounds like he's saying, I can't think of anything to confess, so I'm just generally going to say that I'm a prideful, selfish, envious person, and that gets everybody off my back. Well, it's hard to take those gray, ambiguous sins seriously when you're talking about envy and pride and those kind of things. I mean, I think about the vocational implications of that for myself. I'm a pastor vocationally. I could lose my job for getting high or committing adultery. I understand that. I cannot imagine the heights to which I would need to practice envy or covetousness to get our elders talking about my future employment. I can't understand what that would even look like. And I'm not making a case here. I understand the difference between those things. But it, but it exposes within us our lack of seriousness that we have for sins of which the Bible takes deadly serious. To think about something like envy, Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You let envy get inside of a person and let it run its course, and it will rot that person from the inside out. We are watching that rotting happen inside the person of Saul as he envies David. There are these three stories, and in each of these three mini-stories, you have an emotional outburst from Saul that exposes the envy and the idolatry that dwell just below the heart. Listen to these emotions, and I want us to begin to make the connections between them and our own hearts. Well, the first emotional outburst that Saul has is anger. Israel's army, they come home from conquering the Philistines. David was the one that initiated that by killing Goliath. And as they come back, the women of Israel, they come out and they begin to celebrate. They dance, they sing, they play instruments. They've got tambourines or probably tambours, which were small drums and lutes, which were three-stringed instruments that they're playing. If you're coming from a context of the worship wars and you're looking for a defense of percussion and stringed instruments in the worship service, this is one of a million places in the Bible where that occurs. But they are dancing and they are celebrating and the scene, it actually looks a lot like Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus 15, the people of Israel, they cross through the Red Sea and Moses' sister Miriam, she gathers the women of Israel and they come out with tambourines and they celebrate and they worship. And that's what's happening in our scene and it reminds us that it is really God who is at work. 
When we see chapter 17, we see David's great success. It is really God in him working. The chapter, chapter 18 as a whole, reminds us of this repeatedly. Four times we hear that God gives David success. Three other times we hear that God is with David. God is filling and moving David. The best parts about David, his courage and his success that we see, are God working in him both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the women, they come, they worship, they celebrate. But when we hear what they sing, the, the, a couple of the lines from their song in verse 7, we kind of cringe because we can't anticipate what's going to happen here. They basically say Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Now, I don't think these women were flagrantly um, abusing Saul with that song. I think that they were caught up in the moment. And they gave their king, King Saul, the pride of place by mentioning him first. But it just kind of came out that David has now killed his ten thousands compared to Saul's thousands. When Saul hears that, when he sees this chorus being sung, he is absolutely livid. And he snaps. We don't know who's standing by him. But he says, what's going on here? They are giving David 10,000s. What's going to happen next? Is he going to take my entire kingdom from me? And if you were standing there as a bystander, you would have been like, whoa, buddy, what are we talking about here? We just went from zero to 60. I mean, women are making music and you're talking about mutiny, David taking your kingdom. What's the worry that's going on here? But I want to pause here and I want to zero in on this emotional outburst because Emotions tell us what is in our heart. Outbursts like this, an angry emotional outburst, is a key indicator that there is an idol that dwells just below the surface of Saul's heart that he will go to lengths to protect. You watch an outburst like that, and you know that something is going on behind the scenes. Now, this is a scene that's very familiar to many of us in this room, husband and wife. We're driving to a new location, and the wife is in the passenger seat, and she says, I think we make a left up here, and the husband says, I know what I'm doing. You don't have to tell me that. It's like, okay, that's fine. The daddy walks into the bathroom, and the child has not put the toothpaste cap back on the toothpaste, and the daddy says, you never do what I say. I have to do everything around here because you're not listening to me. And you're thinking, are we still talking about toothpaste here? What what is going on in this emotional outburst? Anger, outburst, a short fuse, snapping, this kind of low-grade irritability that we carry around, they all show that something is at stake deep in our hearts. My idol of pride is infringed upon when somebody leans over and they give me directions. My idol of self is infringed upon when somebody doesn't do what I say and I make myself the victim again. And my anger, my response is a dead giveaway that that's happening. You show me somebody who struggles with anger and I will show you a deeply insecure person who has idols just below the surface of their heart. Now, I'm not going to say that to their face because they might rip my head off, but that's part of the problem. 
Anger, it isolates. It keeps everybody at an arm's length. If you're the angry person in this room and you find yourself in a community, even a church community, that's not willing to pry into the lives of each other, that person is safe behind the wall of their anger because nobody wants to address that in a community. If you feel that emotion welling up inside of you, you feel that kind of response, you're snapping at somebody, you're responding in anger to something that's happening, don't immediately put a spiritual fruit on top of that thing. Don't say, I need to be more patient, I need to be more gentle, I need to be more kind. Do the hard work of asking the questions, why am I so mad? What's going on here? What is at stake that I am responding to? And let the Lord infiltrate deep in our hearts to say, what is that idol that I'm defending? For Saul, it is the idol of self, fed by envy and threatened by the success of another person. He cannot stand to see David succeed where he has failed. That's his first emotion. It's anger. And we can see that in our own hearts. The second emotion in the second scene is similar. It's hatred. Scene two, very next day, Saul is filled with this harmful spirit. We've talked about this. David plays as has been agreed upon to relieve Saul of the torment he's experiencing. And Saul tries to kill David. Now in chapter 17, Goliath wielded a spear against David. Now in chapter 18, Saul has grabbed a spear to wield against David, which means that Saul is no better than a Philistine. When he first became king, even though there were people that tried to block his kingship, he was so tender and so sensitive that he would not respond in anger to those people. But now that envy has rotted him, he is willing to murder in a moment. He's willing to do that because envy it objectifies. If you take a person and you do not see them as created in God's image, a human being, personal, but you begin to see them as a sum of gifts or circumstances that you wish you had or wish were true of you, you have begun to objectify that person. And an objectified person is an expendable person. That person is just the sum of the things that I want. And if I'm honest about the darkest places in my heart, I wouldn't mind if some ill befell them. Is that not a wicked thought that has passed through all of our minds and hearts? This person who succeeds in so many places and does well and has all the things that I wish were true of me or that I desire, I wouldn't mind if something bad happened to them. That person has become objectified because envy feeds that very thing. That's why Paul pleads with us in 1 Corinthians 13 and says, Love does not envy. It doesn't. Envy has nothing to do with God's character of love and it shouldn't have anything to do with our hearts. That's why James warns us in James three fourteen through 16, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Speaking of every vile practice, when envy feeds and rots within Saul, when he feels this hatred welling up inside of him, he throws his spear at David and tries to kill him twice. Now, I think this is a a grace of God between the lines of this scene. But it's remarkable that a man of war, Saul, who has been doing this for a large portion of his life, killing people, killing people with a spear, he can't take a spear and hit a man across the room from him. In fact, he misses twice. 
I think that is divine grace interceding. I think even though envy breeds in us every vile practice that God in his sovereign grace, he will create boundaries on top of our hearts and he will not let us commit what we are capable of. In this scene, he spares David's life, but he also spares Saul the sin of cold-blooded murder. Well, finally, number three, Saul experiences fear. I think verse 12 in our passage is one of the most darkly ironic verses in the Bible. Look at this. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Did you hear that? Saul is afraid because God's presence is with David and it has left him. If I'm afraid of what the Lord is up to, it begs the question, what am I up to? If I'm afraid what God is doing and what he's acting in a certain situation, what am I up to? If I fear God's providence, where he'll lead, what he'll ask of me, what it's going to cost me, how it's going to turn out in the end, I betray that I have a very different agenda and it's not the Lord's. I'm afraid of what he will do and where he will lead. Just like anger and hatred, this fear betrays an idol. For Saul, his idol has become his position. He watches in envy as David threatens the thing that is dearest to him. And in verse 15, we hear that Saul is filled with fearful awe. He cannot stand possibly losing what he is hold dearest to himself. Emotions do this. They're barometers of this idolatry that dwells in our heart. And when we see these outbursts, when we feel these strong emotions, they are giving way to the idols that dwell within us. There's one more thing I want to point out about envy from our text before we talk about application for God's freedom. Do you notice the only person who's affected by these strong emotions in this passage, this anger, this hatred, and this fear? Saul, of course, is the only person who's rotting and being eaten alive by these emotions. He's the one who is envious, and yet he's the one who is being overcome by these emotions. He's only hurting himself, so to speak. Author Carrie Fisher once said, Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Isn't that a great sentiment about how envy deceives us? It's like we're being poisoned by this very thing that we're looking towards this other person. Saul is the one who has a spear. David, he just has an instrument. I mean, Saul, he has the throne. He has the kingdom. David is riding off of a promise, and he hardly has a place to lay his head. And yet Saul, in the position of power, is the one who envies, and he, not David, is the one who is terrified. Envy is rotting the bones of Saul, and he can't even see this. How how do we look at that kind of life and think about our own lives? How do we see those kind of emotions and begin to tease that out of ourselves and understand the envy that dwells deep within our hearts? Last week, we said that Jonathan, he shows us Jesus in his esteem of David, but Saul this week, he shows us our dark hearts by his envy of David. If we were just kind of a moralistic, pharisaical, performance-based cult here, then the application, it would be very simple. Just knock it off. I mean, if you're experiencing envy, stop it. If you're being like Saul, 
quit doing that and start being like Jonathan and things will go well for you. That's a very simple application. But we know that in Christ, things are much more complicated than that. He has renewed us. He is making us into a new man. But we have the dark, fleshly heart still within us that betrays us and deceives us. And we must understand that the gospel is always the engine for obedience. What Jesus began in us through repentance and faith when we were first converted, he's going to continue to work in us in our sanctification through repentance and faith. Now James 3 and 4, the end of James chapter 3 and the beginning of James chapter 4, is a fantastic description of of which we read part of it, of envy and of the freedom that God gives us from envy. I commend these two chapters to you to read and to study and to understand. But in the closing two and a half minutes, I want to make the application that James makes with respect to envy. James gives us four movements in this battle with envy that we as believers begin to take. And for our remembrance, there are four R's. Ready? Number one is to recognize. Recognize the envy within us. James says... What causes quarrels among you? That's a great question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. In other words, you envy. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you read 1 Samuel 18 and you see the envy within Saul and God by the power of his Holy Spirit is able to make a connection between Saul who lived 3,000 years before you and your own heart and the emotions that dwell to defend the idols within you, if you make any kind of connection at all in recognition of envy, that is a gift of God. That's a gift that God is now giving you to say, I want you to see these very things in your own heart. Number one, we recognize. Number two, we repent. Now James, he doesn't use that word. He uses other words. Submit, draw near to God, mourn and weep, humble yourself. What he's saying here is repentance is not just admitting faulty moral character, that there are things in ourselves that we would like to improve. This is not a closed system. When we repent, it is bringing our sin before a holy God. Now that's interesting with respect to envy because you could think about envy as something that's just between me and my neighbor. This has nothing to do with God. I see something that I want. I see something that I want to be like me in another person and I envy that, but this has nothing to do with God. I would never sin or affront a holy God. And yet, envy is a very roundabout way of saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't believe that the things you've given me are the things that I need. And I don't believe that if I'm just relying on you, you will provide for me in every way. God, I do not trust you. And that's why I envy and I covet and I look to another person and I long for those things in them. Envy is an affront to a holy God. Repentance is the step of humility that owns that confession and says, God, I've sinned against you. And in many ways, it is you alone against whom I've sinned. We recognize, we repent. Third, we receive forgiveness. I love how James says this, especially in the shadow of Christmas. He says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Christian, you who envy, you who quarrel, you who make friendship with the world, draw near to God in repentance and in faith, and you will find that God has already dwelt near to you. 
You recognize these things, you repent of them, but then by all means receive the forgiveness that God gives you in Christ so that finally, number four, you will be able to resist, as James says. You'll be able to fight, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have new power as a new person to fight for a tranquil heart that gives life to the flesh, the writer of the Proverbs says, and resist the envy that will make the bones rot. Let's pray together. Father, will you fill us and enable us to resist, Lord, the devil that he might flee from us. You've given us all grace in Christ Jesus to recognize these things, to repent of them, to receive your forgiveness, and now to do battle. Envy is a cruel taskmaster. It has many of us by the throat, and I pray that you in Christ will give us freedom from these things to resist that which will rot us. But instead, you will give us the joy of your sufficiency, that we would look to you in all enjoyment and praise. We ask this, we plead for this in Jesus' name. Amen.